interwebs. I'm Dave Rubin. This is the Rubin Report. It is time for a Friday roundtable extravaganza. And joining me today is a New York Times bestselling author and legendary. That's right. I'm coining him a legendary journalist who I don't have to put air quotes around, Andy No. And also joining me for the first time is an evolutionary biologist, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and the founding editor of Reality's Last Stand, Colin Wright. Andy, Colin, welcome to the Rubin Report. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. I am glad to have you guys, and I thought I would start with something, although we're gonna discuss the woke week that was. I'm gonna uh, start with something that kind of put you on the map, Colin. I've known you for years, and I didn't even realize until five minutes before the show that you've actually never been on the show before, which is very bizarre to me, so I I owe you one. I'll I'll try to make it up to you. Uh, But I wanna throw up this meme that you had created a couple years ago that's gonna look very familiar to people. We've shown it on this show a couple times, and what you created this, uh, What around what year was that? Do you remember? I think I created it in 2021. 2021, okay, so now what you're seeing there, and the reason that this meme went viral is because Elon Musk reposted it, and this was before he bought Twitter, but sort of as he was waking up politically and seeing what was going on uh, in terms of free speech and everything else, uh, he posted this about two years ago, and it went viral, it was your meme, and as people can see up top, in 2008, you said the little character that's me in the middle there is kinda center left, Then four years later, 2012, you can see the left, the fellow liberal has gone way, way left and you are now a little bit closer to the center. And then in 2021, now nine years later, you can see me, the me character is now kind of on the right. The left has gone woke progressive, calling everybody a bigot. And the conservative is basically like, LOL, see, I was kind of right about a lot of this stuff. I don't. I think that was the most uh, time anyone has ever spent explaining a meme in the history of the world. But Colin, can you talk a little bit about your personal political journey? Because it does very much mirror mine. It mirrors Elon's. I, I can't speak for Andy, but I think it mirrors his to a degree in a certain way. None of us are sort of people that you would traditionally think would be more on the conservative side of things, yet here we are. Yeah, I mean, it was partly inspired by, I think, a video you did, uh, you know, years ago called, you know, I didn't leave the left, the left left me, if that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was, that was something I felt very deeply, given certain topics like free speech and uh, women's rights and, uh, you know, judging people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And all these seems to have just been, like, completely abandoned by the liberal left as I knew it at the time. And so I wanted to, I just felt this sort of like this ground shift where like I had basically maintained my own views, my 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 values. Um, and then the ground shifted underneath me where those values used to be reflected in my opinion on the center left best. And mm-hmm. now I see them more reflected probably on the center right. Um, so now I'm, you know, considered to have been uh, radicalized by right wing <laughs> fundamentalists, even though uh, in reality, I've just, basically stayed in the same place and everyone else has gone on the crazy identitarian train, uh, the bullet train to the left. So uh, that's that's sort of, you know, you were definitely a help uh, sort of giving me this vision of the left leaving me. Um, and I was thankfully able to put it into a meme form that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of memes. They can get the ideas out there to spread in a way that talking about it sometimes doesn't quite do. Andy, do you find some common cause in that? Because it's kind of funny. I actually, we're friends outside of this show and you've been on my show a million times and I've read your books and all that stuff. I actually don't know all of your political beliefs, but I know every time they write about you, the mainstream media, they either call you a right-wing conservative or alt-right or you know one of these crazy things, which, the way I know you as a human has very little to do with what I can sense your political beliefs are. Thank you, Dave, for providing a little bit of that personal insight into um, your interactions with me. Uh, I'm based in the UK now, um, but I'm from Portland, Oregon. That's where I did most of my reporting. That's how most people have heard of me. And now that I've spent uh, some time away from America and can can look into US political culture um, while not physically being there, um, I think a lot of the ridiculousness and contradictions are made much more apparent. And in one particular area is how radicalized um, the left, the liberal mainstream left is in the U.S. It, it, it's, it's actually quite different in Europe. Yes, in, in, in U.K. and Europe, they have the woke um, and the far left here as well. But they they really do it kind of they exist on the fringes and are often mocked by the center left and center right i think in the us um perhaps americans don't realize because we we become really so used to it is how radical the mainstream left is if you mm-hmm. look at for example i'm just reading some older writings from uh ibram x kendi uh, when he was known under, under a different name. And some of his older writings were um, so just these racist greeds against uh, white people referencing their DNA and their genetics. And this person uh, is one, unfortunately, a many, many upheld um, by the mainstream liberal elite left as a... Um, as a figure we should take inspiration from and look mm-hmm. up to and uh, view as a moral guidance and, and also as an intellectual. So, uh, you know, when, when we have these discussions about how politics have shifted so radically, let's say in the last just decade in the U.S., you know, I, I, look, I, look, I look at it with actually a lot of despair. Well, let's get to the hope part because people know I like to do a little hope on this show. And that's actually why I wanted to have you both on this week because there were a couple wins against this woke craziness this week. The big win uh, was that Claudine Gay is now the former president of Harvard. She has resigned from her post at Harvard after the anti-Semitism and plagiarism scandal. We've got some info here from Greg Price, who's another journalist. I don't have to put air quotes around. Breaking, here is Claudine Gay's resignation letter to the Harvard community. She writes, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Now, interestingly, uh, Colin, I referenced you earlier 
this week on the show because you had a prediction about how she would behave uh, once she would resign and you absolutely nailed it. So here's Colin Wright a couple days ago. Prediction, Harvard President Claudine Gay will resign, but she will not admit any wrongdoing. Instead, she will claim to be the victim of a racist right-wing witch hunt that is impacting her mental health and causing needless distraction for students and faculty. And then, of course, here's one more from Greg Price with her doing just that. Uh, Breaking, Claudine Gay just published an op-ed in New York Times where she decries attacks on education and expertise, says she fell into a well-laid trap before Congress and says that the people, uh, and says that the people to called for her fi- who called for her firing trafficked in lies and stereotypes about black talent. So yes, she did exactly what you predicted, Colin. I suppose that that little man who tried not to move too much in the meme is not surprised by any of this? No. I mean, it's not difficult to predict when you observed how these types of identitarians work. So remember, the objective of ideologies like CRT, it's not to ask whether racism occurred, but really how and to what extent a given interaction was fueled by racism. You know, they believe it's just baked into every social interaction imaginable. Mm -hmm. And then we've seen the people like, you know, the usual suspects, Ibram Kendi, regurgitating those, you know, their pathetic rehearsed lines about how this is white supremacy and we're all afraid of black excellence. Uh, You know, he actually said that gay wouldn't have been investigated or pressured to resign if this was a, a white woman. But, you know, I'm coming from a science background. We actually have a near-perfect natural experiment to look at that controlled for these relevant variables. Liz McGill at Penn was another female president, Ivy League University, facing backlash for identical remarks at the same congressional hearing. But unlike Gay, McGill was white and didn't have 50 charges of plagiarism against her. <laughs> right, And right. she received no support and resigned almost immediately. So, right. I mean, these, these claims are just so easily debunked. It's completely <laughs> at odds with reality. Right, and that's the irony, and I said that on Fox a couple days ago. To me, it was like the anti-Semitism thing. I actually think because she was a black woman, she would have got away with it. It was only because of 50 plus counts of plagiarism that finally they were like, all right, this is this is a bit much. But Andy, you, you are well-versed in the radical left and some of their tactics. Do you think in a weird way they view her resigning, and by the way, she's keeping her $900,000 salary and will be part of the political science department at Harvard, so it's not like she's getting smacked down too hard. Do you think in a weird way they they wanted this outcome because in some ways it proves their theory that the white woman, the, sorry, that the black woman in power will always be taken out, so it just adds more fuel to that? No, I don't think they actually wanted this outcome. I think hmm. up until now, um, the elite woke uh, who have control over institutions have had just win after win. And, um, you know, the takedown of um, Claudine Gay is symbolic in the sense that she's just one among many, many powerful figures who are part of this apparatus of DEI, CRT, and woke ideology. However, I do think um, her resignation and disgraces, uh, though the outcome is a mixed bag in that it's not, uh, you know, she she retains a, a tenured position at Harvard and will continue to have influence over her colleagues and students, um, despite committing the worst sin in academia, which is plagiarism. Um, 
But I think those who have dedicated um, uh, advocacy against DEI should really see the significance of this as overall a huge victory because mm -hmm. of the fact that there was um, some buy-in from the mainstream liberal left. Not entirely, but enough. Yep. Enough that we see it and we hear it, and that's actually really significant. I think um, the power of the woke left, or whatever you want to call it, the far left, um, is in the fact that they have been able to have such a stranglehold and control over mainstream uh, liberal elite institutions and cultures. And for there now to be very small cracks to be showing, you can see how those who are sort of uh, have benefited from this have been reacting. They're <coughs> reacting. Um, they're really freaking out, which is why they are treating this uh, horizonation as such a horrific thing to have happened um, because they're scared. And we, those who want to see this entire system topple really have to keep up the pressure. Um, the work that Rufo and others like him have done uh, on Claudine Gay and others has been so important. And we really have to support their journalism and their activism. Indeed, indeed. And you're actually giving me a perfect segue there because when you talk about those cracks breaking through to the mainstream, uh, Coleman Hughes, who's an author, he's also been on the show. And I think another guy that you could probably consider on that sort of center left side a couple of years ago, who let's say is shifted, who happens to be black. Well, he was on CNN and they asked him about what should have happened to Claudine Gay. So you don't think there was anything um, about this that had to do with the fact that she was a black woman from no. the from the people who were claiming this as a victory against DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I don't think it did, and and you know what? Even if it did, that doesn't justify it. If 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 you or I did this, or even any white scholar, it would be career ending to have fifty examples of plagiarism, and it has to be because how can you be the one upholding Harvard's integrity when you yourself have failed? It, it, it's as if the commissioner of the Major League Baseball. Uh, or the NBA had a lifelong history of steroid use and was now the person in charge of kicking other people out for steroid use. It's completely untenable. What's your view on whether or not this idea that uh, the race of the person accused is not important here? So I, I think it's definitely uh, a point here that really um, we have to look at because you know the example you gave for the, Stanford, the president of Stanford, you know when he came on. He had seven months of an investigation. There was an internal investigation. Kirkland Ellis was hired to actually go through and do a thorough review of the analysis of all of his academic work to go back and find that there was very serious allegations of plagiarism. Harvard Corporation did an investigation. They could have done an internal investigation. It took several months. Why is it that it took seven weeks to decide that this was too much, whereas the president of Stanford got seven months for, the, for similar allegations? Well, I, mean, why, I mean, why do you think? The, uh, the and obviously, I should say, I mean, there was obviously the anti-Semitism issue, her testimony before Congress, which mm -hmm. put her in the hot water to begin with. But it's but after Harvard moved past that internally, this was the thing. Yes, this was the thing. And, and well, my question about the internal Harvard review that you seem to think was a very rigorous process is how did they only find, what, four or five examples of it when there were 50, almost 50 to find? And plagiarism, it's not like a... It's, it's not like true crime where there's, there's a million perspectives on it. You kind of well, either I, lifted the paragraph say, or you didn't. It's just great work right there by 
Coleman. Like he's just telling the truth. It's interesting because the other guest isn't saying that plagiarism uh, is okay, but he's basically like, oh, well, they just did this too quickly. Like that's not legit in academic circles, is it, Colin? Not even a little bit. I mean, we're seeing this sort of language game, trying to not even call it plagiarism, call it duplicative language. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of <laughs> right. activists come out and saying, oh, you don't know what plagiarism really is. But her plagiarism violated Harvard's letter of what plagiarism actually is, uh, overtly in about every single way possible. Um, so yeah, I mean, Coleman is, of course, right on that if you're at a place like, you know, Harvard, which is supposed to be the most prestigious university in the world, having this this mar on your record of of uh, you know academic uh, type of academic fraud is just completely unacceptable. It'd be one thing if she was a head of a corporation or something uh, you know that's selling phones or something like that. But mm -hmm. no, this is an academic institution. So you need to have the you know the utmost rigor with uh, with who's representing these things. You can't have the double standard for the president uh, versus the students that are being you know expelled for for much lesser infractions. Andy, do you think this is going to light a fire through the other academic institutions, uh, not just the Ivy League, but where we're going to find out that a whole bunch of professors, of presidents, of faculty members, all, all sorts of people have been lifting things, stealing, not having the, the proper qualifications, et cetera? Well, I don't think the institutions themselves will have a fire under them to do reviews of um, their uh, faculty. However, I suppose a Rufo fire, let's say. Yes. Well, what I do have hope in is that more, you know, f with the investigations into Claudine Gay that were done by uh, grassroots activists, that is the altogether thousands of hours split among essentially crowdsourced through the public, a num not, not entirely the public, but a number of people working um, uh, paragraph by par paragraph through her work. Now, for that love that level analysis to be applied um, to other academics and other active to other so-called leaders, um, it's going to take a lot of work. And um, I, I I hope now that this can continue because I think the outrageous reactions we've seen from some of the DAI ideologues may be because some of them have um, mm -hmm. that, uh, in their own background, in their own work, things that they would not want people to uh, scrutinize. Um, we're having a little taste of that with Ibram X. Kendi's um, research. I mean, there are former colleagues of his at, at his so-called anti-racism research center um, who have now accused him of uh, really serious misconduct. Um, that center has had millions and millions of money poured into research that they haven't produced really anything. And so this type of scrutiny really has to be applied to not just individuals, but also institutions. I think the SPLC needs to be scrutinized in that way, um, uh, as well as other so-called like uh, hate watch organizations that purport to protect uh, civil rights. And by the way, now that we have AI, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to be comparing and contrasting old papers and new papers and doing some of the research as opposed to manually having, you know, grad students going through all this stuff trying to figure out if they were copy and paste jobs. But let's let's move over to the second topic because I mentioned this is the woke week that was and we got some wins. So it is a win 
one way or another that Claudine Gay is no longer the president of Harvard. Uh, another win was the reaction uh, by the fans to this new director of the Star Wars film. So uh, yes, Star Wars has handed its $67 billion empire, whatever is left of its empire, uh, to a uh, feminist. Take a look. So the first woman and the first person of color to direct a Star Wars film. It's set to be released in 2026. You can say that the force is strong with this one. Here's Charmino Bechinoy. You know, I'm very thrilled about the project because I think um, what we are about to create is something very special. And we're in 2024 now. And I think uh, it's about time that we had a woman uh, come forward uh, to shape the story in a galaxy far, far away. Okay, first off, everyone's heard me on this. Kathleen Kennedy has been running Star Wars for the last 10 years. She is a woman. She has basically completely destroyed it. Uh, Colin, I think you're a big Star Wars guy as well. Uh, I suspect you are not thrilled that they have handed this to a woman who thinks that in and of itself, being a woman is a reason to direct Star Wars. I mean, it's all the same stuff with the identitarianism, you know? So they're just injecting the activism directly into the films. And this is the problem with a lot of the woke ideologues. They can't just make movies that embody their vision. They have to make the movie overtly about the activism itself. And it always ends up being cringe. You know, if, if you want to challenge norms, just write your strong female characters. This mm -hmm. has been done in ways that doesn't center activism. Sigourney Weaver and Alien. Exactly. Jennifer Lawrence, Hunger Games. Uh, I even usually bring up like things like Bridesmaids, which I thought it was a hilarious movie with an all-female mm -hmm. cast because they wrote good characters and they were funny. But then you have another movie, Female Ghostbusters, which had almost <laughs> the exact same cast, and it was terrible because it, it was overtly shoving activism down our throats. So the last thing that the Star Wars needs is to continue down this activist path. Just write the good characters and the good stories. So, I mean, hopefully, once they see the numbers of the box office, we'll change course, but it might take a few more for them to really get the picture. Wouldn't that be something making art for art's sake? By the way, I have a technical question maybe one of you guys can help me out with. I bought years ago the, the female Ghostbusters on Apple TV because I wanted to see it just so I could talk about it on the show. I knew it was gonna be horrible, but I, how do you delete something that you bought on Apple TV? <laughs> I don't know that it's possible, I can't. All right, I'm gonna have my crack team <laughs> get on that. Um, I want to show you a video. So this is from eight years ago. This is this woman. Her name, uh, Obiad Shinoy. Uh, this is her talking about John Stewart's interviewing her, and you'll recognize a couple other people on the panel, uh, talking about what her intentions are when she gets a film in her hands. What is the balance of activating a force for change, but also trying to permeate that patriarchy, that power structure, and is that a part of the calculation of your art as well, and, and what's been the reaction to that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I like to make men uncomfortable. I enjoy <laughs> making men uncomfortable. <laughs> not you, just, just not, you not, know, you. not, not you. Point not taken, you. point taken. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is important to be able to look into the eyes of a man and say, I am here and recognize that. And recognize that I am working 
to bring something that makes you uncomfortable, and it should make you uncomfortable, because you need to change your attitude. And it's only when you're uncomfortable, when you're shifty, when you have to have difficult conversations, that you will perhaps look at yourself in the mirror and not like the reflection, and then say, maybe there is something wrong with the way I think, or maybe there is something wrong with the way I am addressing this issue. Andy, I remember when I was five years old, the first time I saw Star Wars and I went into the bathroom after and I stared in the mirror for like an hour and I said, you're a horrible person, Dave. You're, you're a boy, you're, you're just terrible. They're killing everything. And by the way, Jon Stewart, yeah, you gotta break the patriarchy. Like what a cuck. That's what they say, a cuck, yeah. So my, my reaction after seeing some of these injuries of this um, female director, I, I, I wasn't familiar with, with her before is, um, you know, the the arrogance that one has to have to feel um, that to be quite openly careless about their their handed she's been handed this legacy mm -hmm. of this film franchise that has taken decades and decades to build has millions of fans around the world. I mean, personally, I, I I'm not a Star Wars fan, so I it doesn't personally mean a lot to me, but I know through friends and throughout people in my, in my life growing up, how much it has meant to them. And, you know, well, we haven't seen the film that, um, you know, and we won't for a long time until it comes out, which she ultimately makes, but people should be concerned that somebody who has this history of saying these things, of having a, a political philosophical agenda in her work, is now been handed this huge franchise with this legacy. Um, I just think first off that it's, it's really hugely disrespectful to the fans. And I mm -hmm. think, um, it, it, I mean, it, it speaks to the, the, the lack of leadership, I think, from Disney and how they've handled huge, um, uh, you know, their brand. I mean, we, we saw with how with the live action of Snow White, with their, their lead for the um, Snow White actress saying all these things, essentially um, crapping all over the, mm -hmm. the, the first Disney film that made uh, Disney that made Disney have the legacy it have today for her to dismiss it in these interviews about um, uh, how it was essentially a bad film and that Snow White was a bad character. It's, uh, you know, so. We see the arrogance coming from not just actors in films, which is unfortunately to be expected, but also from directors. And by the way, Disney announced a few years ago when they got both Star Wars and Marvel that they were gonna push Star Wars to be more for young girls and the Marvel Universe to be more for young boys. So they, that is a type of social engineering, isn't it, Colin? Yeah, absolutely. They, uh, this is all part of like a, a bigger pattern that you see like happening in so many different institutions where they take an institution that has this legacy, this history, this earned prestige, and then the activists just at the 11th hour hop in the driver's seat, commandeer the whole thing just to use as a megaphone to spout their own ideologies and, you know, undermine the entire legacy uh, that's there. We see this with the ACLU. We see we're seeing this with Harvard, how, you know, all this prestige they had. Now they're just you know, uh, spouting racialist ideologies. Uh, Star Wars is doing this now. We've seen medical institutions do this. This is just part of the broader, you know, activist narrative of sort of taking over the institutions uh, and commandeering them to their own ends. And uh, yeah, I think I mean this is a pattern that we're seeing, and it's it's going to keep going. And hopefully, we can start pushing back against this. And I think 
again, at the box office, this is where ultimately it's going to uh, it's going to get the pushback that it deserves. Right. The pushback is the key part. So I mentioned this was there were some wins. So the, it's a win for Claudine Gay to have resigned. I think there's a reaction win in this Star Wars story. There was nobody out there like this is a great idea. Everybody was pushing against it. We'll see ultimately what the movie will look like. I want to show another one that I think we can frame as a win because finally it seems to me that what's going on at our border here is bubbling up into the mainstream. It's gotten so out of control that mainstream is finally starting to cover it. Uh, check out what this migrant caravan, this is the largest migrant caravan heading to the US right now. It's known as the Poverty Exodus, about 15,000 people. Take a look. Um, Andy, they're not criminals, they're international workers. That might be true. I suspect that's not the case for everybody, but isn't it a moot point? We have a border and you can't just rampage through our border, or I guess you can. What surprises me is that people are, are shocked and surprised when they see these videos because this has been going on um, at a similar scale now um, at the U.S. southern border for years. I mean, uh, Going back many, many months, there has been an average of at some peaks around 200,000 illegal border crossings to the southern border happening per month. In December, it was particularly noteworthy because it was um, the highest record, I think, at 225,000 documented illegal crossings. Um, I think because America is such a huge country, uh, it's easy for media and for for people, the citizens, to also to turn a blind eye to the impact of illegal migration. Um, if you're in a, a community in in one of the northern states, you're not going to be impacted in the same way. Um, whereas with migrant crises that happen, let's say in Europe, you know, when a, a whole country is the size of one state mm -hmm. and you have hundreds of thousands of people coming in, people do see it and they react and politics shift very rapidly because of that. Um, in the U.S., things move a bit more slowly. I think uh, it's actually been really important um, in terms of raising awareness that we've had governors now uh, allowing um, these uh, asylum seekers to then go to a city destination of choice, such as Chicago or New York. And now some of the impact that it's happening in these other places is making it more of a bigger issue for Democrats. That's important. It's unfortunate that it has to, that they have to feel the impact of mass illegal migration for them to start pushing back. Um, but yeah, if that if that pressure is not spread evenly, the Democrats will continue to to. I mean, what they would like is for it to to, to continue to, to turn a blind eye and to mislead the public about how serious this problem is. Right. So, Colin, I know this one isn't a win yet because we're watching this happen to our border right now. And certainly, if you live in those border cities or you live in the sanctuary cities, this is no good, and it'll it'll proliferate everywhere. Actually, but the the reason I view it as a win is if we flash back to that stick character who was a little bit on the left uh, a couple of years ago, this seems to be an issue that is waking up people and is shifting their voting habits. Exactly. As Andy mentioned, you're getting now Democrats that are starting to talk about this because of that 
you know, concerted effort to make it impacted uh, to the, the, you know, the, the blue states. So they actually are feeling the type of immigration that, you know, a lot of the red states and border states have been feeling for a while now. You know, it's hard to believe this is even like a controversial issue. I remember right. 10 years ago, I had, hadn't really paid attention to the border issue. I was arguing with a friend about, you know, why it's important to have borders. Uh, they told me there was no real crisis because only something like 100,000 people came over a month. And at the time, I didn't even know that that was the stat. And it just was completely shocking to me. I, my, my guess was probably it was on the order of maybe 10,000 a month or something. And let me be clear, 10,000 would also be a ridiculous number. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I just think sometimes you just see the numbers and they just don't mean anything. You just add another zero. It's like, what, just, I don't even know how to comprehend this amount of people. Um, so, you know, the only way uh, to get people to actually do something is when it shows up in their communities. So I think, I think we're on a, a track to get a victory here as well. Right. And the reason, at least one of the reasons that the numbers don't seem to miss any, uh, mean anything is because our leaders and their spokespeople just give us complete nonsense. Check out Corinne Jean-Pierre. Uh, we're going to show her from this week and then it's going to show what she was saying two weeks ago. Um, a couple weeks ago, you had said what we're seeing at the border isn't unusual. But in the month of December, there were more than 302,000 migrant encounters, uh, the highest total for a single month ever reported. So. Does the administration concede that what we're seeing now is unusual? What I said was, to be exact, is that what we're seeing at the U.S. is, is, uh, is, is ebbs and flows in how many migrants arrive at the border. It's something that happens every year. It ebbs and flows. And what we're seeing here at the border, the migration flow, uh, increased migration flow, certainly, uh, it, you know, it ebbs and flows. And we're at a time of the year where we're seeing more uh, at the border. And it's not unusual. This is an immigration system that has been broken for decades. I will give her some sort of credit there in that she did say two weeks ago that it ebbs and flows, but Andy, she's treating immigration as if it's weather. Like, oh yes, it's December and it's a little bit colder and when we get, like this is just complete nonsense and it's irrelevant. We either have a border or we don't. Well, it's no surprise that she would downplay the seriousness of what's been happening because immigration, when it's made as a an issue for voters uh, that doesn't dem that does not benefit the be ben um, benefit the Democrat Party. So, uh, it, I mean, it's unfortunate that it's had to take such an, a long ongoing crisis for, for the administration to be asked more and more. Uh, my the longer questions I have though is, what can this or the next administration do? I mean, even. You know, reminder, even under the Trump administration, a, a completed border wall was unable to take place. And so this this is an issue that seems going to be with America because of our our, our politics, uh, potentially indefinitely. I don't know if there's a will really to um, to shut down the, the pathways and routes for mass illegal migration to the U.S. You know, it's not, and people often think about, it's like, as Colin said, it's numbers, 20,000, 200,000, 500,000, million. These numbers just become kind of abstract when you see them as numbers. But the impact um, on, on housing, on resources, the significant strain on taxpayer funds that are needed to house and to feed and to educate, um, all these people who come in, and of course, it's a security issue as well when people are coming in, um, usually with no documents uh, because they destroy their identity papers. So you don't even know who who they even are. So it's uh, um, unfortunately, this is uh, it seems like a 
problem that mm, there's no will in either really party or way um, to to stop. Andy, you gave me another great segue to the final uh, segment today because you've been covering these Antifa protests for years. And now, as you mentioned, you're in the UK now in London and you've been covering a lot of uh, these pro-Hamas rallies, which of course are not only happening in London, but all over Europe and in the United States and in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, tomorrow on January 6th, there is supposedly going to be a massive, uh, and this was advertised by BLM, so you can see how these things are really connected, BLM and Hamas and the rest of it, uh, a massive rally in the UK. I wanna just show you the, the ad that they're putting out for this thing. Andy, let me jump back to you first on this because uh, when I was in London, when I saw you at the R conference, uh, I drove by one of those rallies and it was very obvious to me that it would not have been safe if I was outside. We have, you know, and recognized certainly. Um, it's very obvious that the Jewish community in London does not feel safe. There are pro uh, Hamas posters, river to the sea, all of the slogans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you've been covering this from America, from Portland with Antifa to now. Can you just talk about this confluence of, of strange um, issues that are all coming together? So the makeup of the, uh, I'll just call them pro-Palestine demonstrations have happened in the UK. The political makeup is pretty similar to the US, uh, all over in the West actually. You see this strange bedfellows coalition of Palestinian nationalists, um, Arab nation nationalists, um, Muslim radicals, Islamists, jihadist sympathizers, uh, liberals, and the radical left. Uh, some of these groups have nothing in common, in fact, uh, are quite against one another. But together, uh, they are protesting for this particular cause. Uh, in the UK, since the 7th of October, as in many, many countries around the world, we've seen these huge demonstrations that have um, at times led to instances of violence, uh, extremism, anti-Semitism, uh, and property destruction. I think um, in the UK, there, there are restrictions on, for example, um, inviting support for a banned terrorist group. Hamas is one of those groups. So the language is slightly, it can be a bit more subtle in the UK because there have been a number, there have been dozens of people who have been arrested at some of these rallies due to signs and statements they've made that are um, perceived by law enforcement to be violent extremists. Um, we don't have those limitations in the US and you can kind of see, in my view, more of the true face of what um, the mainstream pro-Palestine demonstrations are by looking at what happens in America. You see those who bring over and over Hamas flags, um, pictures of Hamas leadership. Um, the chants are much more explicit in their calls for violence. It's a bit more toned down in, in Europe in some, most instances, although not always, um, because there are more Muslims 
um, in the UK and in Western Europe than there are in America, you see much more of a attempt by uh, Islamists to explicitly make this into a religious conflict where it, it, it is now the religious duty of Muslims to show solidarity for Palestine by any means necessary. And there have been already a number of terror attacks um, that have happened in the UK and Western Europe since the 7th of October that law, law enforcement say were inspired by the current conflict involving Israel and Hamas. Right, and then you look back to the previous segment we just did, and we are allowing hundreds of thousands of people into our borders, having no idea what they believe or where their allegiances are or anything else. Uh, but you bring up an interesting point about speech and what is allowed and what is not. I think the main thing that we're struggling with here, it's one thing if you're gonna chant river to the sea and whatever and what are the limits of the First Amendment are. The other thing is though they are blocking bridges, they are stopping traffic, stopping people from getting to airports. Here's video uh, on New Year's Day protesters uh, at the Rose Parade in Pasadena. Colin, I'm fairly certain that if Israel was losing, they would not be calling for a ceasefire. They'd be pretty thrilled. But that aside, how long do you think a society can hold when on any given day, any group with whatever their grievances can shut down a bridge, shut down an airport, shut down a parade, uh, stop people from going into a mall, et cetera, et cetera? This, that to me seems like the issue, that we're, they're sort of testing what Western societies are willing to tolerate. And I think we're failing the test. Exactly. I mean, it, it's it's mind-boggling how we don't just enforce the the law as written and remove people from streets who are blocking, you know, the flow of traffic. Um, you know, I, I'm gonna actually gonna count this as another win. You know, we've been trying to tally some wins mm -hmm. uh, going on here. And it might seem like hard to find a win out of all of this, but there is a silver lining in this because I think with regard to the whole Palestine and Hamas and all this stuff, the woke left's mask has completely fallen off here. Their aggressive ideology is fully exposed. We see the woke identitarian ideologies like CRT and decolonization. We see where these things lead, where they sort of have this simplified oppressor oppressed. You know, being a decolonizer uh, apparently means you can justify anything against colonizers, including rape and murder. It's It's woken up so many liberals moderate liberals from the dangers of wokeness. And I believe we've reached a tipping point here. We've waited for a sort of mass awakening to push back against the threat of the great awakening. Like we've had gay ousted, more universities are rejecting DEI, corporations are too. We need to, need to ensure that this momentum doesn't lead up. You know, DEI capitalized on the momentum from George Floyd's death, uh, pushed the radical ideology far and wide. Now it's our turn to sort of march it back to where it was, you know, not only where it was, but, you know, back out of America for good, I think. So I think this is a win um, and we're going to see uh, some improvements from here, at least I hope. Colin, I always try to end the show on a positive note. You gave me the win on that one. So I thank you. You're welcome back anytime. Andy, as always, you're welcome back. Have a great weekend, guys. And for everybody else, we have a post-game show coming up in about 30 seconds at rubenreport.locals.com. Thanks for watching, everybody.
Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. And don't forget, you can watch my direct messages live on Blaze TV and YouTube every weekday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, if you want to connect with me personally and get early access to my sit-down interviews, join rubinreport.locals.com.